And we ask you, O oh Lord, to change us. As we do every week, Lord, we don't want to be like those who come and, and hear the word proclaimed and who sleep, sleepily listen and have no intention of doing anything about it. But may we, Father, be found faithful to respond to your word this morning as we hear it preached. And may we, in accordance to your word, respond well to the example that we will see in George Whitfield this morning. Praise you, Father, for your word and for the exhortation in your word to mark people that we know, we see, we read about who are more faithful than we are so that we can learn practically and helpfully how to live in a manner pleasing to you and to affect the world around us. And so, Father, we thank you for this hour. Give me grace now, Father, and freedom to preach, protect us from error, fill us with your spirit, and may that spirit that fills us ignite in our hearts a holy ambition for gospel urgency in our time and what time we have. Lord, we praise you and we give you thanks for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like for you to just kind of put your finger in a couple of places in your Bible. And one is Matthew chapter 5 and the other is Romans chapter 3. Matthew chapter 5 and Romans chapter 3. There's a lot of texts that I'm going to mention this morning. These two are going to be especially significant as we go along. In 1776, when the United States became its own sovereign nation, it was understood that the basis of this new society would be self-governance. It was said that ours would be a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Of course, the fundamental assumption of such a scheme was that people, the people who made up this fledgling nation possessed the necessary moral character that would preserve their liberty and protect them from future tyranny. It's clear from the letters and documents of our founding fathers that this need of a fundamental morality was necessary. For example, John Adams, our second president, while he was serving as president, wrote a letter to the Massachusetts militia. And this is a portion of what he said. Listen to this. Adams writes, We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government the governance of any other. A few day, uh, decades later, um, America was visited by a French historian and diplomat, Alexis de Tocqueville, who after a thorough tour of our country is attributed to having drawn the following conclusion. And I quote, he said, America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. In other words, the secret of American freedom is American virtue. But if it's true that at the founding of our nation, the, the population possessed a general and remarkable virtue, 
My question is, to what was that virtue owing? Or to ask the same question in a different way, if de Tocqueville was right in declaring that America was good, where did that general goodness, that ambient virtue, come from? Answer, it came in large measure from the ministry of a single man whose name is George Whitfield. I want to begin with a short biography this morning and then talk about Whitfield's revolutionary sense of gospel urgency. I say revolutionary in part because he sometimes is called the spiritual founding father of the American Revolution. I say it also because his life and ministry transformed not only one nation, America, but two nations, including all of Britain or most of it, anyway. And so let's give you a little biography of George Whitfield. Whitfield was born to Thomas and Elizabeth Whitfield in Gloucester, England, December 16th, 1714. That's 62 years before the Declaration of Independence and the American Revolution. His parents owned a, a hostel, an inn, called the Bell Inn, which was both a hotel and a tavern. It was a restaurant. His father died unexpectedly, and it left his mother to run the place. And though George was precocious, to say the least, as a child, and had a knack for all things academic, yet there was no money to send him to school. His, his forefathers had all gone to Oxford, and he wanted to go to Oxford, but he, he rather turned his heart toward just helping his mother at the end. By and by, however, someone mentioned to his mother that George might be able to go to Oxford if he was willing to become a servitor, which meant that he would agree to being kind of a, a servant to some of the, the more wealthy students in the school, and so he did. Upon entering Oxford, he soon met two famous, would-be famous uh, young men who were also going to college, and that was John and Charles Wesley. He joined what they called the Holy Club, or you might know it as the Holiness Club. The club was made up of a number of religiously serious young men who were all about studying to become Anglican priests. They were in England after all, and this was an Anglican uh, school and is today. They were devoting themselves to the Lord. They were, however, as was the case often back then, unregenerate men. In fact, John Wesley came to America as a missionary, and he was lost. It wasn't until he was on the run from the law because of a relationship with a woman that went wrong. He got on the boat, they hit a storm. He was screaming like a woman because he was so scared that they were going to sink. And his Moravian counterparts, those who were traveling with him, weren't screaming and frightened. They were singing praises to God. And he said, what's wrong with you people? <laughs> Whatever it is, I got to know, which led eventually to his salvation, but I get ahead of myself. Having never known the true gospel of Jesus Christ, these young men thought they could earn their salvation by good works. Accordingly, Whitfield's life was one of almost draconian self-discipline and self-denial. He understood Christianity to be a set of external religious duties and performances. It was all about living peaceably with one's neighbor and keeping the forms of worship when they assembled on Sunday morning and occasionally 
occasionally extending one's hand to relieve the poor. But his perspective radically changed when Charles Wesley, who was the first member of the Holy Club to actually embrace Christ alone for salvation, loaned Whitfield a book by a guy named Henry Skugel. And the name of the book is The Life of God in the Soul of Man. The Life of God in the Soul of Man, which, by the way, you can get on Amazon, Kindle version, for 99 cents, and it's worth every penny. In it, Google argues that, now just listen carefully here. Let me, let me just have all eyes up here. Listen, you don't probably have to take notes. My notes are going to be available. All 23 pages and 37 footnotes are going to be available for you online. So maybe just listen. You can take notes if you want to. But I want you to hear this because some of you desperately need to hear this. Google argued that a man may go to church and say his prayers and receive the sacraments and not be a Christian. And I emphasize this because I, I firmly believe that some of you come week after week. And some of you I specifically pray for week after week. Because you come to church and you may even give, I don't know. And you participate in the forms of worship and you don't know Christ. And Christ doesn't have your heart. Such was the case with George Whitfield and the Wesley brothers. Upon reading this from that book, Whitfield wrote in his journal, how did my heart rise? Not, this kind of rise is not, not a good rise. It's fearful rise. How did my heart shudder like a poor man that is afraid to look into his own account books lest he should find himself bankrupt? Yet shall I burn this book? Shall I throw it down? Should I put it by? Or should I search into it? And so I did. And holding the book in my hand, thus addressed God, the God of heaven and earth, saying, Lord, if I am not a Christian, if I am not a real one, for Jesus Christ's sake, show me what Christianity is, that I may not be damned at last. And then by the mercy of God, while lying in bed in his college dorm, he read the story of the thief dying on the cross beside Jesus. And he writes, It was as though the scales fell from my eyes. Because Whitfield realized that the thief hadn't done anything. He hadn't done anything except believe. And no sooner had the thief declared this than Jesus said to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. To this Whitfield wrote, Oh, what a way of divine life did break in upon my poor soul. Oh, what joy, joy unspeakable, even joy that was full of and big with glory filled my soul. What George Whitfield experienced that day is what he would call in his preaching for the rest of his life. I think he lived till he was 56. He called it the new birth. 
He had been born again of the Spirit, just as Jesus described to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And you can quote it with me if you want. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Not long before his death, looking back upon his life, this life-transforming event, Whitfield declared, Oh, I know the place. It may be superstitious, perhaps, but whenever I go to Oxford, I cannot help running to the place where Jesus Christ first revealed himself to me and gave me the new birth. This was the turning point in Whitfield's life. For he wrote, My mind, being now more open and enlarged, I began to read the Holy Scriptures upon my knees. Which, by the way, so often is the first, the first fruit of truly knowing Christ as you suddenly have an insatiable desire to read his book. I began to read the Holy Scriptures upon my knees. What he would do, he'd get up early in the morning and he would read on his knees and he would pray through every verse. He would have Matthew Henry, love Matthew Henry's commentary. One of my great regrets as a, as a teenager when I went to Word of Life Bible Institute, my grandfather gave me his copy of all of the volumes of Matthew Henry. I had no idea what they were for because I wasn't a believer. And uh, they were beautiful and I gave them away. Oh. Makes me sick every time I think about it. He would have Matthew Henry opened, and so he would read the text, and then he would read it in the Greek, and then he would read Matthew Henry. And George Whitfield was brilliant beyond reason, and no one knew it at the time. But he would read the scriptures, and he, he wrote this. I daily receive fresh light, light and power from above. Prayer now became a rich joy to me. He states, oh, what sweet communion had I daily vouchsafed to me with God in prayer. How often have I been carried out beyond myself when sweetly meditating in the fields. How assuredly have I felt that Christ dwelt in me and I in him and how I did daily walk in the comforts of the Holy Spirit and was edified and refreshed in the multitude of his peace. George Whitfield was 20 years old and he had already been studying for ministry for at least a couple of years. Eric Metaxas concludes, what followed from this moment in a bed in Oxford's Pembroke College can hardly be calculated. A divine breeze blew that day, which over the course of the next weeks, months, and years would become a sanctified tornado. And I would say that's an understatement. I almost called this message a sanctified tornado, referring to George Whitfield, but I wanted something that Whitfield said. And so I named it what I did. Soon at the age of 22, Whitfield was ordained, by the way, two years early, and because the rector or the bishop in the Anglican church was so impressed with him, 
he was allowed to ordain him two years older than what was two years younger than what was allowed. And so he was ordained in the Church of England. He was asked to preach for the first time, his first sermon. His biographer writes, all in attendance that day said they had never heard his equal. First sermon. I remember my first sermon in college, and the homiletics professor was recording it. He said, this is the deal. You write a five-minute sermon, preach it to the class, everybody takes notes, critiques, we're going to video it, and afterwards I'll sit down with you and we'll go through the video. And so I did that, I preached my five-minute sermon, everybody took notes, never heard from my professor. And I went to him and I said, weren't we going to sit down and, and watch the video together? He said, no, nah, not in your case. <laughs> we don't need to do that. Um, it was that bad. <laughs> I am totally serious. And uh, I never forgot that either. Within weeks, he became an English phenomenon. The people wanted to hear him preach, and preach he did. In fact, he began preaching many times each day. He preached wherever he could. He preached in churches. He preached in prisons. He preached to soldiers. He eventually began preaching outside. When the church wouldn't let him preach inside their church, he just started preaching outside. And he eventually got John Wesley to do the same, and Charles as well, who were largely responsible for the transformation that took place in England. He preached to soldiers, and every Sunday he preached not in one, but in several churches. He traveled to Bristol, where he knew many people worked in the coal mines. The first day, 200 people who happened to be walking past him on their way home stopped to hear him. He was preaching in the open air. The next day, the number grew to a thousand. And the next day, 20,000 people showed up to hear him preach. Later he wrote that the first discovery of their being affected by his preaching was to see the white gutters made by their tears which plentifully fell down their black cheeks as they came out of their coal pits. Many thousands of these men and women received his message of salvation and freedom that day with great emotion. Not long later, he sailed to the American colonies. I'm leaving a lot out here because of time. He sailed to the American colonies. George Whitfield had preceded him and started to um, pull together an orphan home. He thought he would go and help. As he was leaving England, uh, he didn't know it at first, but... John Wesley was actually arriving in England. He uh, left America and never returned. And so he went to America. The dock he landed at was at Philadelphia. When he got to Philadelphia, he discovered that his reputation had already preceded him. Ben Franklin, who became a very dear friend of his, remained an unbeliever his whole life, but a very dear friend of Whitfield, partly, I think, because they were both super geniuses. And they both knew it. When he arrived, Ben Franklin reported that on the first morning, Whitfield preached to 6,000 people. And after that, 8,000. And on Sunday, 15,000 came to hear him. Um, ben Franklin was so impressed by this. On one of these occasions, he was, this is downtown Philadelphia. You've never been there. Even back in that day, there were a lot of buildings in downtown and Whitfield would preach on the court's steps, the courthouse steps. And Benjamin Franklin, being the scientist that he was, thought to himself, hmm, I wonder how many people could fit here if there weren't any buildings. 
And so he began walking backwards as, he, as Whitfield preached. And he walked backwards until he could no longer clearly hear Whitfield preach. And then later on, he drew it out on a map, and he gave about two square feet per person and concluded that if there had been no buildings, 30,000 people would have been able to hear him clearly. And that's how we can understand that Whitfield himself said on at least one occasion there were 50,000 who came, and on one report, 80,000, which none of the biographers believe. And I don't either, but it was a large crowd. Uh, in his journal... I got that. <laughs> in his journal, Whitfield once wrote, preached nine times this week, which, by the way, was nothing. His biographers all say it was not uncommon for him to preach 60 hours in a week. Preach 60, not preach and go back to your office and study, just preach. Sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon. He expounded, here's what he said, preached nine times this week and expounded near 18 times. I am every moment employed from morning till midnight. There is no end of people coming to me, and they seem more and more desirous, like newborn babes, to be fed with the sincere milk of the word. In England, David Hume, Scottish skeptic in philosophy and deist, though he was, is said to have raced off at five o'clock in the morning to hear Whitfield preach. Now, this is interesting. When he got back, his friends asked him, do you believe what that preacher was saying? And Hume said, no, but he does. <laughs> Reminds me of Paul saying, we believe, therefore we preach. People could hardly keep themselves from going to hear him. Sarah Edwards, in a letter to her brother, wrote these words. It is wonderful to see what a spell he cast over the audience by proclaiming the simplest truths of the Bible. I have seen upwards of a thousand people hang on his every word with breathless silence, broken only by an occasional half-suppressed sob. He impresses the ignorant and not any less the educated and refined. It is reported that while the miners of England listened to him, the tears made white furrows down their smutty cheeks. And so here, our merchants shut their shops and the day laborers throw down their tools to go and hear him preach and few return unaffected. He speaks from a heart all aglow with love that pours out torrents of eloquence, which is almost irresistible. He preached up and down the colonies, from Georgia to Massachusetts, everywhere he went. Great throngs came to hear him. John Piper writes, he was a phenomenon, not just of this age, but in the entire 2,000-year history of Christian preaching. There has, not, there has been nothing like the combination of his preaching pace and geographic extent and auditory scope and attention-holding effect and converting power. Ryle is right, he says. No preacher has ever retained his hold on his hearers so entirely 
as he did for 34 years, and his popularity never waned. But Whitfield was not preaching for popularity. He was preaching for heart change and life transformation. The kind of life change and heart transformation that it can only come through spiritual regeneration. And that's the whole point of this message. He didn't ride his horse through England and the colonies to entertain people. He did it to fulfill his part of the Great Commission. Go, therefore, into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And souls, a vast number of souls were indeed transformed. When he came to America, the fire of the Great Awakening was but a matchstick flame. And by the way, I learned this week, I didn't know this, that that the beginnings of the Great Awakening started in New Jersey. <laughs> the Lord knew they needed it first, I think. <laughs> when he came to America, the awakening had just begun. It was like a, a, a little flame. But by the power of the Spirit and the preaching of the Word by Whitfield and others like Edwards, that tiny flame became a roaring fire that burned through the colonies. Whitfield was determined to reach every man, woman, and child in America with the gospel, and he nearly did. By 1740, Whitfield had become the most famous man in America. In 1749, you might think, well, what about George Washington? In 1749, George Washington was eight years old, chopping down cherry trees. John Adams was only four years old. Thomas Jefferson had not been born yet. Significantly, Wilbur, Wilbur, uh, uh, William Wilberforce was 36 years his younger. He had not been born either. In fact, aside from King George himself, Whitfield was probably the most famous man, not only in America, but in Britain as well. Estimates are that 80%, now try to calculate that in your mind, 80% of the entire population of the American colonies, and this is before TV and radio, 80% heard Whitfield preach personally at least once. And as they heard, them, heard him, many of them repented of their sins and threw the full weight of their faith upon the righteousness of Christ alone and experienced the new birth. But for all this, Whitfield longed to do more for the glory of Jesus. And so he declared, Oh, that I was a flame of pure and holy fire. And there were times when his humanness got the best of him and he was tempted to quit. We don't know what the sin was. He didn't tell us, and that's appropriate. But he was burdened the same as you and I are with living in this Genesis 3 world, right? He longed to preach more, serve more, do good in the land without the encumbrance of mortal humanity. And by the way, this new birth was not merely some man-induced religious resolve. It was born of the Spirit. Salvation and the new birth does something to a man. Salvation is not by works, but it is definitely for works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 make that clear. And the proof or fruit of a transformed heart is a transformed life. If you don't have a transformed life, then you don't have a transformed heart because the fruit, the fruit of the tree determines its fruit or displays its fruit. No life, no fruit. No fruit, 
no life. The fruit of the Spirit begins to show itself with power in the hearts of those who, drawn by the Spirit of God, savingly believe. And this was evident in the unbelieving observers of that day. They noticed it. They saw it. J.C. Ryle wrote, Benjamin Franklin, the philosopher, was a cold, calculating man and not likely to speak very highly of any any minister's work. And yet even he confessed that it was a wonder to see the change soon made by Whitfield's preaching in the manners of the inhabitants of Philadelphia. There was an observable change, an ambient virtue that arose within the populace of Philadelphia. Likewise, Jonathan Edwards reported, when once the Spirit of God began to so wonderfully be poured out in a general way through the town, people had soon done with their old quarrels, backbitings, and intermeddling with other men's affairs. The tavern was soon left empty, and persons, and persons kept very much at home, which was a good thing. You want to know what made America good in the early years of our nation? It wasn't Whitfield the man who brought the transformation. It was Whitfield's gospel. It was the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, is none other than the biblical gospel. And it is the Reformation gospel. You know, uh, this is my 13th biographical message, so it's been 13 years. And uh, every one of these guys were reformed. I mean, all the missionaries, all the great missionaries that you've read about your children, you've read to your children. You know, I didn't know growing up. I heard all the stories in Sunday school. I didn't know, I didn't know what reform was. But all of them. The only exception, at least in my preaching, has been Jim Elliott, who was a marvelous young man, which is why I offered that message and did so much for the glory of God. And so you see, there are two remedies for a sick nation a sin-sick nation like ours. And they are, I'm proposing, gospel preaching and gospel living. And the one comes before the other, and the other evidences the reality of the one. So I want to spend the remainder of our time talking about those two things. And I think I have enough time. Let's talk about Whitfield's gospel preaching. This is where you're going to need Matthew 5, and Romans chapter 3. If we're to gain something of Whitfield's gospel urgency, we need to understand that his gospel, what it was. What is the gospel? Certainly it was the gospel of the New Testament. But what is the gospel exactly? And so turn with me, as I said, to Romans 3 and Matthew 5. Jesus is going to make a statement, and Paul is going to build on it. Praise God for Paul. Jesus lived and did all of these things, and Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, explains what they mean. Um, Here, in Romans 3, we're going to look actually at Matthew 5 first. But in Romans 3, Paul explains man's desperate problem. And Jesus mentions it first in Matthew 5, verse 20. And this is two devastating comments from Jesus, which I use in evangelism all the time. 
Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And you would be right to say, hey, I don't know how righteous the Pharisees and the scribes were. How righteous is that? Jesus anticipates the question. And so in verse 48, same chapter, he says, therefore, you must be, what's the word? Perfect. Well, what does perfect mean? Even as your heavenly Father is perfect. You know what he's saying? You want to enter the kingdom of heaven? You got to be as good as God. You got to be as holy as God. You got to be as righteous as God. God is not going to allow, allow any stain, any virus, any, any um, besmirching of his character, any soiling of his kingdom. And besides, um, you'd be burned up in his presence anyway. If you are going to live in the kingdom of God, if you are going to, to, to be in God's heaven, you've got to be as good as God. And I have people tell me all the time, that's not fair. Well, I say, uh, you may not think it's fair, but I, I will agree with you that it's a really big problem. This is a really big problem. And now turn with me to Romans. Romans chapter 3. And Paul picks up on this. Paul defines the problem even further. Here the Apostle Paul explains man's desperate problem. Jesus taught that in order for people to enter the kingdom of heaven, they have to be as good as God. And now Paul says in Romans 3, beginning with verse 10, he says this, there is none righteous, how many? Not even one. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. So much for seeker services. No one seeks for God. Not unless the Spirit is on the move in your heart. You can seek God for the wrong things, but you can't seek Him for who He is. This is the problem. You see, we were created in the beginning to glorify God by being like God in all holiness, purity, perfection, and joy. But here's the problem. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it's not as though we were aiming at it or trying to hit it. You know, you see these little illustrations for a gospel presentation where somebody's shooting an arrow and they always miss, they always miss, they always miss. And I would say, go back and read chapter one, they weren't even shooting at the target. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We want nothing to do with the glory of God. That's why we fall short of the glory of God. Instead of being righteous in God's sight, we are wicked, rebellious, and sinful to the core. From birth, we are hardwired to rebel against God. And furthermore, because of our rebellion and sin, we deserve God's just and holy eternal wrath. Man's problem, here it is. There is a righteousness you desperately need, don't have, and could never earn. Now that's a problem. You, there is a righteousness you desperately need. You don't have it, and you can never earn it. So, I mean, isn't this the God who wishes for everyone to repent and come to the knowledge of the truth? Yes. So there must be a remedy. Yes. Where do sinners go to get righteousness? 
the whole book of Romans was inspired by the Holy Spirit to answer that question. And it is summarized in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. You can look there, since you're already in chapter 3. Paul explains. Watch this. By the way, uh, do, a, do a little search on your computer for the word righteousness in Romans. I think it's mentioned 34 times. Or is it 43 times? I forget. I'm dyslexic. Uh, at least in my own mind. 21 and 22. This is chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. Paul says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest or revealed. Being witnessed by the law, that is, the law and the prophets uphold this truth. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the whole deal. Not for those who work, but for those who believe. And not just believe. You can't have faith in faith. You have to believe what God has revealed about Jesus Christ and what he has done for you and why you needed it done. Where do we find the righteousness of God, which he requires? Paul answers in the book of Romans, Christ for righteousness. Fly to Christ for righteousness. Whitfield understood from Paul that the most dangerous thing in the human heart is self-righteousness. And everyone has it, and most of us don't know it. To believe that you are virtuous enough to merit God's acceptance and approval because of your good behavior and lack of evil or your law-keeping, that kind of thinking will land you in hell forever. God calls you not only to repent of your sin, but of your righteousness, because you have none that is worthy of him. Because it's not perfect. And if, James says, if you offend the law at any point, you've, you've broken the whole thing. Whitfield was not merely a gifted preacher. He also possessed a brilliant theological mind. And so as he preached, he didn't merely appeal to people's emotions, although he did that. Rather, he appealed to the rich truths of the Old and New Testaments, and he especially loved to point people back to the Old Testament, such as in the prophet Jeremiah, who predicted that one day a Savior would come. And he names him. One day a Savior will come, and he shall be called. Do you remember his name? The Lord our, what? Righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. It's one of the names for Jesus. Paul talks about that in Colossians, or in 1 Corinthians. He is our righteousness and our sanctification. He's everything for us. All I have is Christ, right? When we sing that song, this is what we mean. All we have is Christ. If pressed, I suspect most professing believers would, would tell you that salvation in Jesus Christ comes as sinners believe in Jesus' death on the cross. 
that salvation comes through his violent, undeserved death. And that understanding is true, albeit incomplete. And that understanding is what Whitfield have. Whitfield, Whitfield preached the righteousness of Christ. Now imagine yourself out in the field with, say, I don't know, 20,000 of your friends. And in front of you, up on the hill, is a man standing on a table. And he's preaching as loud as a human being has ever preached. And it's clear. And this is what you hear. We generally, when speaking of the merits of Christ, only mention his death. Whereas his life and active obedience is equally necessary. Christ is not such a savior as becomes us unless we join both together. Christ not only died, but lived. He not only suffered, but he obeyed for and instead of poor sinners like us. And both of these jointly make up the complete righteousness which is imputed to us as the disobedience of our first parents was made for us or to us by imputation. Now, what's he saying? If you didn't follow all that theology, let's go back and make it simple. What he's saying is, just as Adam's sin was imputed or reckoned to your account, so the second Adam Jesus Christ, his righteousness, his perfectly righteous life was imputed to us by grace, through faith, for salvation. If you are born of the Spirit, it is because of regeneration. It is because God took your record of demerit and tore it from his book and laid in its place the righteous record of Christ instead. It's substitution. All of his righteousness for all of our sin. The reason Jesus lived a perfect life for 33 years before his death on the cross was, in his own words, to fulfill all righteousness. He was speaking to John the Baptist. John was questioning, why do you need to be baptized? I should be baptizing you. And Jesus said, no, no. I'm doing this to fulfill all righteousness. Every requirement of the law will be fulfilled in me. That is why I've come. Not only did Jesus die for you, he also lived his whole life in perfect righteousness for you. You may say, well, this gospel is wonderful. It is so easy to hear and to embrace. But, oh, how hard it is for sinners to throw themselves upon such a gospel. Because to do so, one must admit that he or she is spiritually bankrupt in God's eyes and has nothing to offer God for their salvation except their sin. You come with your certificate of demerit, you come like the man, the servant of the king in, in Matthew 18, who owes to the king 250,000 years worth of pay. 
What is that master going to do? That's why Jesus preached that message. You have to come. You have to come with that attitude. But many will not. Because oh, how proud our unregenerate souls are and how they abhor such teaching. We would feel better about salvation. We would feel better about the gospel if we could earn it. Not all of it. Christ would get some of the glory, but we would earn some of it. But then the glory would be ours. And God has said, Isaiah 48, 11, I will not share, I will not share my glory with anyone. <coughs> Listen to me now. God is glorified in salvation only as it magnifies and proclaims the undiluted sufficiency of Christ. Let me say it again. Christ is glorified in your salvation to the degree that it magnifies and proclaims the undiluted sufficiency of Christ. You can't add anything to it. You take a two-liter bottle of pure spring water and add one microliter, one little drop of arsenic, and you've ruined the whole thing. God is glorified in your salvation only as it magnifies and proclaims the undiluted sufficiency of Christ. We come to him not as donors and benefactors, but as beggars and as children who need something that they must receive entirely from outside of themselves. We come with a heart that says what the publican said in the temple, God, be merciful, be propitiated toward me, the sinner. We don't stand before God and say, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. That is self-righteousness. Whitfield understood that the true gospel is about sinners receiving by grace, through faith, forgiveness of sins, and the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. He declared, listen to this, he declared, never was there a reformation brought about in the church, but by the preaching of the doctrine of an imputed righteousness. And so Whitfield would stand before thousands. Now imagine you're out in the field and there's 30,000. And everybody is silent because everyone wants to hear. And this booming preacher Begin saying this. Were you ever made to abhor your own righteousness? For the prophet beautifully expresses it. Your righteousnesses are filthy rags. Knowing the terrors of the Lord, let me persuade you to close with Christ and never rest till you can say, the Lord, my righteousness who knows but the Lord may have mercy, may abundantly pardon you. Beg God to give you faith. And if the Lord gives you that, you will by it receive Christ with his righteousness and his awe. You need not fear the greatness or the number of your sins. For are you a sinner? So am I. Are you the chief of sinners? So am I. Are you a backsliding sinner? So am I. And yet the Lord forever adore his rich, free, and sovereign grace. The Lord is my righteousness. 
Seek the Lord to be your righteousness, a righteousness that will entitle you to his everlasting life. And behold the words of the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 1, verse 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Or from faith for faith, some of your translations say. And then he says in Romans 5, 21, here's his explanation. God made him who knew no sin. Who's that? Who never sinned? This is what I tell people when I'm sharing the gospel with them. Who is it in this world who has never sinned? Only one man, Jesus Christ. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God in him, in who? In Christ. And I say to you, brothers, what I've said to this congregation a thousand times, what this means, what this means is that the reason Jesus died on the cross was God was treating him as if he lived your wicked, rebellious, sinful life. And he did that so he could treat you as if you had lived Jesus' perfectly righteous life. That's the imputation of Christ's active obedience. He is righteousness. And so, yes, it is the cross. And even the cross is part of God's, part of Christ's active obedience. It is his righteousness. Beloved, cultivating true gospel urgency begins with understanding what the gospel is, and too many believers haven't a clue. The good news is that God has provided a way for sinners, yes, ungodly sinners like you and me, to be declared righteous, justified in God's sight for all eternity by casting themselves by faith upon the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, our righteousness. It's beautiful. It's beautiful and so simple. I know the theology behind it. And, and people, I'm not saying that if you pray the sinner's prayer, it's got to sound like this but that needs to be your heart. God, I have nothing to give you. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. That expresses it. This is the core of Whitfield's gospel and of Paul's. By this grace alone do sinners experience the new birth and become reconciled to God forever. And so the remedy for a sin-sick nation, sin-sick people, sin-sick spouse or child or relative, is gospel preaching, but it's also gospel living. And so the third point here, Whitfield's gospel living. I say that the remedies for sin-sick people or nations is both gospel preaching and gospel living because of what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 5 once again. And he said this, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I take that to mean the people in this world are watching you, professing Christian. They know. They see. They see the good works that grow naturally 
and abundantly in our lives like fruit on a tree of salvation. And God wants you to produce those kinds of fruits by his life. I am the vine, you are the branches. So that people will see Christ's righteousness lived out in your righteousness in the hope that one day when we're all around the throne glorifying God, we'll look over and we'll see our neighbor and we'll say, what are you doing here? May they not be able to ask the same question of you. Let us not have shallow thinking about the place of good works in our lives. Let's just keep it in the right place. Salvation is not by works, but it is for works. For by grace you have been saved through Christ, through faith, and that not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. Not of works, so that no one can boast. I'm butchering this, aren't I? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a place for good works. And you know what? I think as we, we as American evangelicals, we as American Protestants, we're so down on works. That's Catholic, or that's Mormon, or that's something. No, it's not. It's Jesus. If you keep it in its right place. And you know what? We ought to be a church that is abundant in good works toward this community and toward one another. And you guys are really, really good. I mean, super good about ministering to one another, without a doubt. And so was Whitfield. Let's talk about Whitfield's devotion to the poor. I'm going I'm to give you a few things that I think manifest or bear fruit to Whitfield's personal regeneration. That the righteousness of Christ in him has produced righteous works. Number one, he was devoted to ministering to the poor. The first thing Whitfield did when he came to America was to pick up where John Wesley left off in establishing the orphan home and it was just outside of Savannah, Georgia, and he called it Bethesda, which meant house of mercy, because he knew that's exactly what these children needed. It was for colonialists um, who died. It was for their children. And so he was determined to finish what Wesley had started. Whitfield was scrupulous about any money that came to his ministry. He took for himself only what was needed to sustain him. In fact, when he got married, his wife had some means, she had a house and furniture, and he was so concerned about the poor when he married her, he moved into her house and started giving away all her stuff. That didn't go over well. <laughs> the rest of it went to support ministries like this orphan home. He was constantly, this was a constant burden on him because it required money. I mean, he was going to build this thing. He was going to build it right to last. And so he's constantly raising money for the orphan home. Ben Franklin tells of uh, the seemingly irresistible power of Whitfield's appeal for money to support the orphan house. Now, a little context here. Uh, ben Franklin and uh, Whitfield were having this conversation, and, and, and Franklin knew all about the orphan home in Georgia. Franklin lived in Philadelphia. Georgia, not, very, not as prosperous, but you know, a lot of money, a lot of people in uh, Philadelphia. That's where everything was happening. And he said, listen, I want to I exhort you uh, Mr. Whitfield, to consider moving your orphan home to Philadelphia. It'd be so much easier to take care of these young people and to raise money. 
And Whitfield disagreed. And Benjamin Franklin was kind of put out by that. And so uh, next time Whitfield preached, this is uh, Franklin's testimony after the fact. I happened to attend after this one of his sermons, in the course of which I perceived he intended to finish with a collection, and I silently resolved that he should get nothing from me. I had in my pocket a handful of copper money, and there was three or four silver dollars and five pistoles of gold. As Whitfield proceeded, he, he said, I began to soften and concluded to give up my coppers. And then another stroke of his oratory made me ashamed of that and determined me to give the silver. And then he finished so admirably that I emptied my pocket wholly into the collector's dish, gold and all. <laughs> Wish we had time because this story just gets better and we just don't have time to read it. Bears noting, by the way, that the Bethesda still exists today. Isn't that amazing? Built in the 1700s. Longest standing institution for helping children in America. It's now known as uh, Bethesda Academy. It's a boarding home for boys. And it's still there. He was so concerned about these young people. And you know what? This is why at our mission conference, we are going to be visited by the founder and the director of Rivertree Academy right across the highway here in Como. A Christian school. The government doesn't control them. They don't, they don't owe anything to the government, aside from the normal stuff, but not as an educational institution. They are free from the grip of the government, which means you can preach the gospel there. You can minister the gospel there. And some of you ought to be over there every week every week. And so they're going to come and make their case for why you should be there. And by the way, we're helping them. We, we send money over there every month. Like uh, We've taken them on as one of our missionaries. And they're literally right... We, we could walk there from here after church. Easy walk to River Tree Academy in Como. But Whitfield was also devoted to helping the black men and women in America, most of whom were slaves. He was so appalled by how some slave owners treated their slaves that he published a scorching open letter throughout the colonies, which read in part as follows. Now get ready for the scorching part. I'm going to read it the way he would preach it. Your dogs are caressed and fondled at your tables, but your slaves who are frequently styled dogs and beasts have not an equal privilege. They are scarce permitted to pick up the crumbs that fall from their master's tables. Nay, some have been upon the most trifling provocations, cut with knives, and have had forks thrown into their flesh. Not to mention what numbers have been given up to the inhumane usage of cruel taskmasters who, by their unrelenting scourges, have plowed upon their backs and made long furrows and at length brought them even to death itself. I hope there are only a few such monsters of barbarity suffered to subsist among you. Is it not the highest ingratitude as well as cruelty not to let your poor slaves enjoy some of the fruit of their own labor? Whilst I have viewed your plantations cleared and cultivated, and some of them have seen many spacious houses and the owners of them farming 
faring sumptuously every day, my blood is almost run cold within me. When I have considered how many of your slaves have neither convenient food to eat nor proper clothing to wear, notwithstanding most of the comforts that you enjoy were solely owing to their indefatigable labors. That was just part of it. Good night. I'm telling you, he was brilliant. He's brilliant. People don't talk like that today. And it took an amazing amount of courage to publish such a letter. And he suffered greatly as the plantation owners responded fiercely in the press. And not only in the press, as we'll see here in a minute, by also by bodily threats. But Whitfield didn't change. He didn't, he didn't scare easily. Someone needed to cry out against the butcherous injustice, and he did. And by the way, the slaves loved him. There's tales in some of his biographies of slaves coming and asking, because they didn't know. Pastor, do we have souls? They loved him because he preached the same gospel and gave the same promises to them. And when he died, they say the largest part of the attendance at his funeral were the slaves. Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Isn't that a sweet providence? And as Christians, we are sickened by the gross injustice and butchery by which millions of innocent babies are killed in America every year. And I say, oh, may we not be found silent on the issue of abortion. And may God so grant that one day we may see the complete abolition of the abortion industry just as we once witnessed the abolition of slavery. And this is why we urge you ladies to consider helping the Pregnancy Help Center. We're winning. We're winning this battle. It takes years and years and years, but we're winning. This was the 45th anniversary, I think, of Roe versus Wade. And there used to be far more abortion clinics than there were pregnancy help centers, and now it's exactly the opposite. Far more Christian pregnancy help centers. And we need to keep going. Woodfield was bold and clear on the mistreatment of slaves, though, as we'll see in a moment, he was remarkably blind to the larger issue. Next, he willingly suffered for the gospel. This is, again, some of the fruit of his life. Part of Whitfield's gospel urgency was a willing to suffer, willingness to suffer. Not all the crowds who gathered around him were adoring. Some hated him. You remember in Philippians, Paul said, For it has been granted that for Christ's sake you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Philippians 1.29 J.C. Ryle writes regarding Whitfield that, that any human frame could so long endure the labor he went through does indeed seem wonderful. And by wonderful, I mean he means remarkable. That his life was not shortened by violence is no less wonderful. Once he was nearly murdered in bed by angry soldiers. Actually, some think he was on a hit list because the plantation owners were furious. And he came home one night and there was someone in his house. 
and tried to kill him. Once narrowly escaped being stabbed by a sword. Once he was nearly stoned by a Catholic mob in Dublin, Ireland, who cast dirt, stones, rotten eggs, and dead cats at him. Uh, That was unexpected. Actually, it was worse than that. I, I, I kind of cleaned it up a little there. But Ryle says, Ryle says of Whitfield, he was immortal till his work was done. And so are you. So are you. As we learned last week from Philippians chapter 1, gospel urgency demands that we overcome our fear of potential suffering and count it a privilege to suffer for Christ's sake if we will ever become effective at winning souls. You want a place to practice that? That's what 4SG is for, for the sake of the gospel, that ministry that we have that's been going on for, I don't know, 10 years now. Every other week, a group of you all and some from Living Hope. Living Hope guys are really devoted to this, as are a few of you here at Calvary. And you all go down, and praise God you do. You go downtown, and you just find strangers and share the gospel with them. And uh, you'll learn to share the gospel if you go with them. And you'll learn how to suppress your fear and to place your faith entirely on Christ. And it'll become easier. And you might get discouraged that it's not as effective as you hoped it would be. That's okay. You're learning how to speak to your family members and your neighbors and strangers who come to your door. And there's opportunity here for you to bear fruit for God by your good works. And then another fruit of his regeneration was humility. As a great man, great a man as Whitfield was, he, he wasn't always right. He made mistakes. He was not without sin. For example, in his youthful zeal, he openly criticized and questioned the salvation of other ministers and pastors who didn't live up, in his mind, to their God-given duties. In the early days, this is another one, where I think he had it wrong, He was warned by Jonathan Edwards of the danger that he was given to mystical impressions, believing that God often spoke to him specifically and personally, aside from the plain meaning of Scripture. And we'll come back to that one in a minute. And most tragically, while Whitfield decried the abusive treatment of slaves by their masters, he never really grasped the injustice and evil of slavery itself. And we know that terribly unfortunately, because we find that Whitfield himself owns slaves to enable him to run, to build and to run his orphan home. Every biographer I've read marks this as the one dark blot on an otherwise unimpeachable reputation. What are we blind to? I wonder. And there was no excuse for it. And no one should make any excuse for it. He should have known and he should have spoken more. But then we also need to remember that aside from Jesus himself, all our heroes are sinners. Even if your hero is Moses or David or Paul. I can't help but think, however, that if he had, he had come on the scene 65 years later, he would have immediately seen the error and partnered with William Wilberforce and John Newton to bring an end to slavery. But alas, it was not to be. The reason I believe he would have owned his error in this regard is because of his history of uncommon humility. 
His biographer, Arnold Dalimore, said, a frequent expression of Whitfield's is most characteristic of this man. He would say, let the name of George Whitfield perish so long as Christ is exalted only. Let my name die everywhere. Let even my friends forget it if by that means the cause of the blessed Jesus may be promoted. And it was evidenced that this humility was evidenced regarding his mystical impressions. Whitfield eventually demonstrated the ability to own his own error in this regard. When his wife was about to give birth to their first and only child, Whitfield had an impression that he thought was from the Lord, and he freely declared, uh, and, and a lot of people knew this, it must have been in print or in a letter, he declared that the Holy Spirit of God had spoken to him personally and that he was to name the baby John and John would grow up to be a great preacher. Four months after the birth, however, baby John died. Humbly, Whitfield confessed to Edwards, I, I misapplied several texts of Scripture. Upon these grounds, I made no scruple of declaring that I should have a son and that his name would be John. Later, when he came back to New England to meet with Edwards again in 1745, he spoke to Edwards of what happened. He confessed that many good souls, both among clergy and laity, now listen to this, many good souls, both among clergy and laity for a while, mistook fancy for faith and imagination for revelation. That's not me. That's Whitfield. And I say that because... This is the most volatile thing I preach. Every time I preach this, people leave the church. I hope that's not the case today. But let me read it again. It's from Edwards and Whitfield. Many good souls have, among both clergy and laity have for a while mistook fancy for faith and imagination for revelation. Later he was to write, I find that I frequently wrote, as he's reflecting on things he did in the past, I found that I frequently uh, wrote and spoke with my own spirit when I thought I was writing and speaking by the assistance of the Holy Spirit of God. I have likewise too much made inward impressions my rule of acting. By these things, I have given some wrong touches to God's ark. Now that sounds very poetic, but think of what he's saying. Who touched God's ark and died? I have given by these things some wrong touches to God's ark and hurt the blessed cause I would defend and also stirred up needless opposition. To have this kind of humility in the church is rare. This has humbled me much, he writes. I bless God for ripening my judgments of a little more, forgiving me to see and confess, and I hope in some degree to correct and amend some of my mistakes. So, oh, beloved. How different our homes would be if we regularly humbled ourselves and owned our sins freely to one another without equivocation and in a spirit of God-wrought humility. This gospel-wrought humility evidenced itself in other practical ways. Several years into his ministry, his old friend John Wesley began attacking him publicly for his Calvinistic theology. And Edwards... I mean, not Edwards. We're talking about Whitfield today. Whitfield made no response. This was all public. This was in the press. And he refused to respond. He loved John Wesley. And John Wesley was attacking him. 
Whitfield refused to respond. In fact, when it became apparent that the rift between him and John Wesley was about to tear English Methodism apart, he went home to England, he met with Wesley and the other leaders of the Methodist movement, over which um, George Whitfield was the leader. And he gathered them all together and he said, listen, Christ is worth more than this institution and his name will be dishonored by our division. And so, John Wesley, I give you control. You are now the leader of Methodism. And those who were following um, Whitfield were, were just beside themselves. They thought that was wrong. And Whitfield knew it was right. And in the end, shortly before his death, this is amazing to me, shortly before his death, he requested of his friends that when he died, John Wesley might be asked to preach his funeral. And they did, and he agreed, and it's a magnificent sermon. In fact, let me read it to you. No, just kidding. <laughs> Here's what I want you to see. It does little good to be zealous with the gospel if your life fails to bear the fruit of it. Have this attitude among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on, took on the form of a servant. So you empty yourself as you did on the day you first believed. Today, as we look at the turmoil in our country, in our world, it's clear every party and political personality has a theory for how to fix what's broken in America. But it never works because human ingenuity can never remedy the real problem, which is sin. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed and lived can transform hearts and thereby transform a nation. And I pray, may God fill us with the kind of gospel urgency that will save others like he has saved us and will have such a transforming effect on our nation and on our homes. May God be merciful to us. Oh, Father, thank you for this hour, and it has been an hour. We praise you for whatever work your Spirit is doing in our hearts. Oh, Father, if you've sent your Spirit to save, would you save them now? To repent in other ways, may you grant them repentance now. May you have your way with us. May our hearts be docile to your Spirit now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.